welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, editor-at-large for LARB, and I'm joined by my fellow editor-at-large, Medea Ochen. Hi, Kate. Hi, Medea. And this week, we're speaking with Joanne Beard about her new book, Festival Days. And I unfortunately missed this interview, Dea, so you did it by yourself. Tell me about the book and, and Joanne Beard. It's a beautiful book. It's a collection of essays. There's a couple of short stories in it. I don't know if listeners can hear, but my dog is snoring really loudly in the background right now. And I feel like that's appropriate to Joanne's work because she is such a huge lover of animals. And that is one of the things that we talk about in the book. The book is also very much about, you know, I I mean, just to say sort of be direct about it. It's about death, illness. It's about some very serious subjects that I think Joanne really treats sort of singularly and beautifully, often by projecting herself into the moments of death and illness. So, you know, it was interesting talking to her. Mm. She doesn't mess around. (laughs) Right. Neither do you. No, and I do mess around probably a lot (laughs) more than I should, but... um, As do I. Okay, well, yeah. (laughs) I hope you don't mess around too much in this interview. No, that's true. Let's listen. Okay. Today we're talking to the renowned essayist and fiction writer Joanne Beard, whose latest collection is called Festival Days. Joanne is the author of multiple books, including the collection of autobiographical essays, The Boys of My Youth, and the novel In Zanesville. Her work has appeared in The New Yorker, Tin House, Best American Essays, and other magazines and anthologies. She is the recipient of numerous awards and accolades, including the Nonfiction Fellowship for the Guggenheim Foundation and the New York Foundation for the Arts. She teaches writing at Sarah Lawrence. Her latest book, Festival Days, is a collection of essays and short stories, though Joanne writes in the beginning that there's an element of fiction in her essays and an element of essays in her fiction. Many of the pieces in this collection deal directly with death, illness, childhood, and memory, and of course, Joanne's renowned and professed love for animals. Thank you so much, Joanne, for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much. I want to talk first about there's heavy subjects that the book sort of dives into right away. It's not totally afraid of them, but I want to talk about how you came to write this particular collection and where Festival Days is coming from. Yeah, so it's a collection of pieces that I've written over the last 20 years. So each piece came to be written for its own reasons and in its own time. And then at some point, I just realized that I had basically enough pages to make another collection of essays if I included the stories that I had written as well. And both of those stories are sort of long, so they were crucial to the book in that they made it possible to bind the book physically. So it seems like me creating a hybrid book with essays, you know, nonfiction and fiction is like some outre thing to do, but in fact, it was necessary in order for me to be able to have a book at all. And so all of the pieces were written for their own reasons at particular times in my life. And I'm not 100% sure that they fit together beautifully as a book. But thematically, as you pointed out, they have some strange things have recurred 
over the last 20 years of my life that make the book feel in a way like it's intentional, although it wasn't. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, all of the pieces feel to me thematically extremely linked. So maybe we should just start with the first one and that I think really introduces what many of the others touch upon, which is, so the first one is Last Night, I think. Yeah. It's a short essay and it's about the illness and death of a dog and the decision of putting the dog to sleep, essentially. And aside from the heartbreaking subject matter, I think heartbreaking for anyone who's ever had an animal or who might still have one, it does a fantastic job of sort of introducing something that each essay goes back to, which is the inevitability of death in a way. I wonder why you begin with the death of an animal. Because so many of the other pieces then move on to really, I'd like to talk about this, but delve into the people, the inevitable deaths of people that you may or may not have known. And I wondered about this decision to start with the death of a beloved pet. Well, it's always difficult to figure out how to order a collection that was written at different times for different reasons. So essentially, I just laid all the pieces out in front of me and tried to figure out if I were a reader of a collection of essays and stories, what would be the best place for me as a reader to begin to get into the themes and ideas that appear throughout this book. And that piece is short. And it's also a tribute to my dog, Sheba, who I loved so much. And that last night of her life is sort of seared into my memory. And that's not even to say that it was such a horrible experience or anything. But what it was, was a really lonely experience for me. It was about being so far away from what I thought of as my home at that point in my life and having her as my best friend, like totally, you know, because you have a dog, Dora, that your dog becomes so crucial to you at certain points in your life. And Sheba meant everything to me. So that night, that last night that we spent together, still like is something I think about all the time. And I revise it. I think about what I might have done differently, et cetera, small things. And so I don't know, somehow the idea of beginning it with Sheba, and this is going to sound really crazy, but imagining that Sheba is still somewhere in the universe and would know that my third book begins with the story of her and me seems like if you don't have a way to begin a book, you might as well begin that way. So I started with that, and then everything sort of just fell into place behind her. I want to talk about your love for animals, because it's something that I keep returning to when I read your work. And, you know, we'll move on to the larger questions of death and illness after, though I think they're related. Just talk to me about your love for animals, because it's so palpable. It's also, you know, known. You rescue animals, and this initial piece is to your dog. What is it? What is it that so inspires this love for you? Well, maybe part of it is coming from the Midwest, coming from farm country, where, you know, from the time I was not raised on a farm, but all my, I have a huge extended family and almost all of those people lived on farms. And so, you know, for a child, that's magical. 
to go visit these places, which is like a second home to you, where there are ponies to ride and there are cows in the fields, always dogs, 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 cats, feral cats, barn cats, family cats, chickens, ducks, pigs. I have a a special fondness of pigs. My husband and I lived on a pig farm for a while right after we moved in together in the 70s. And I think both of us came to have a huge fondness and respect for pigs. But the other thing is if you're raised around that stuff as a kid, you sort of square off early on with the idea of them being that these farms are actually flesh farms where they're growing flesh in order to consume it. So you either, like most of my cousins and my siblings, you either just accept that and become inured to it, or like some of us, you see it and you go, oh no, oh no, not only is this completely wrong, but these creatures need my protection. They need my love even more because this is what people want to do to them. They want to actually, they want to serve these chickens to us for dinner. And so you either can handle it or you can't. And I couldn't handle it. And so I think my whole life has been lived with a hyper awareness of the unfairness of that. And also, frankly, the terrible cruelty of it. Because when you see it up close, you see the things that the people who go to the grocery store and buy the chicken in the packages don't see, which is one of the reasons why it's so easy to buy the things in the packages, because it looks so sanitized and in the real life it isn't. And, you know, I've like raised ducks and have ducks as pets and stuff like that. And you even see how Mother Nature doesn't sanitize anything. It's really hard to witness what those lives can be like sometimes. It's a big sort of dawning responsibility to have as a child to see, you know, the creatures and then think, oh, I have to take care of them. I'm not sure that that's what a lot of kids experience. Right. But I think it's what we begin with. Because Mm. if anybody you know has a baby and you buy a gift for it, the likelihood is that an animal will appear somewhere on that gift. It might be a onesie with, you know, a bunny applique to it. It might be a book about an animal. It might be a stuffed animal. So we begin by knowing that children love animals. And that has to be trained out of them. You don't go from loving to clutch a stuffed bunny at night for security's sake to eating rabbit at a restaurant. You don't. It doesn't happen automatically. Children have to be trained to do that sort of thing. I think that makes sense. I guess I'm sort of impressed at the sensitivity that it takes and the strength that it takes to sustain that sense of sensitivity to life, because I think it can be really heavy. And I think that's why a lot of people do just move on and handle it. Like you said, your cousins kind of handled it. And It strikes me that, you know, you bring the sensitivity to your work in really kind of incredible ways because, I mean, so one of the pieces that I'd really like to talk about is called Sherry. Sherry, who was a woman diagnosed with cancer and who eventually, with the help of Dr. Kevorkian, 
who sort of, I think, makes an incredible cameo in this piece, undergoes assisted suicide. And you bring yourself into her mind, essentially. And I want to talk about how, what that process was like, because the piece begins with her just sort of just beginning to be sick. It also brings in her loved ones and people who are around her at the time. And it goes all the way up until the moment of her death. And again, the the sensitivity there to a life that was led and a life that is being diminished is kind of extraordinary. I don't know for listeners and readers, I think you just have to read the piece to experience it because you kind of feel like you are dying with Sherry. It's a really remarkable feeling. But can you talk about that process and how, how you brought yourself into this mind of this woman who was dying, who was a real woman, I should say. Yes, yes. Her name is Sherry Trimble. And I guess that, you know, over the process of thinking about these pieces, and especially this piece, over the last 20 odd years or something, I understand more about writing than I knew back then. Mm. And one of the things that I understand about it now that I didn't fully understand then was that it's all writing. Like Sherry Tremble, whoever she was as a person, I didn't meet her. And so what you're reading when you read that piece is writing. It's not really Sherry. I can't even find a way to convey fully who I am on the page. Even when I try to write myself, it becomes a character and it becomes the idea of who I would like to be in any given situation, what I would like to sound like. And I didn't ever meet Sherry. So I had to make her up. So that piece is really about writing Hmm. more than it's about Sherry. And I think that her family and friends would agree with that, that what I may have captured would be the details around what happened to her, but that I didn't particularly capture well who she was in the world. And I know that because I had conversations with her daughter afterwards. But nevertheless, if I want to write a piece about somebody, I have to be able to sort of project into who I think that person might be. So I guess what I'm saying is maybe the piece was a failure in terms of capturing Sherry, but maybe it succeeded in capturing something about what it feels like for me to have imagined facing the end of your life unwillingly. Like, yes, she did commit suicide with the help of Jack Kevorkian, but she wasn't ready to die. She had no choice. She was unable to tolerate pain medication, and her cancer was extremely painful for her, and her impending death was going to be really unpleasant. So she opted to get out in the only efficient way she could manage at that point. And so those were the circumstances of her death. And for me, it was really interesting to imagine my way into what that might have felt like for a person to go through. It strikes me that as you're talking about that, that there's potentially two sort of controversial things about this piece. One being perhaps the presence of Dr. Kevorkian, who, you know, eventually went to jail for assisted suicide. And two, potentially the idea about aestheticizing death, right, and aestheticizing pain. And this piece does that, I think, making it a beautiful experience in a way. And I wonder what you think about that, about the process of aestheticization. 
Right. Well, I can tell you that I think you're talking about the end of the piece Mm -hmm. where I imagine my way into her final moments, let's say her last 15 minutes or something after her family left. I guess after all that time of writing it, when I got to the end, I wanted to offer something to the people she left behind. There's no way to help her. There's no way to even imagine what it was like for her. And I suspect it was very different from what I wrote because I have a feeling that she just wanted it done very quickly because in that moment she was suffering and he was compassionate. And I have a feeling that he would meet her wherever she was in that moment. And if she said, please do it right now, he would have done it. But thinking about her daughters and her close friends who took her there and then had to leave, I guess in that moment, I wanted to make something that felt expansive and beautiful for them. But in terms of that issue of making death beautiful or something or aestheticizing something that's grim, I probably think of it in the same way that I think of anthropomorphizing animals, which people have also asked me about. And I completely approve of doing that. Because anthropomorphizing animals generally means that we project ourselves into them. And we say, if I were a chicken or a pig, I would not want to be confined to a cage that's only a few inches larger than my own body. So therefore, let's not ask that of them because we wouldn't want to ask it of ourselves. So anthropomorphizing animals in the end, I think, makes their plight a little better. Mm. And I think that also aestheticizing death, what does it do? I mean, it doesn't mean that we don't experience death. There's no way around that. But maybe it makes it a little more pleasant for the people who are left behind who have to imagine their way into somebody's final moments. I mean, it's why we pretend to believe in God, right? Because it gives us some way of saying this isn't the end there's somebody waiting with open arms for us i guess that's okay too you know to believe that you're listening to the larb radio hour recorded remotely we've been speaking with joanne beard author of festival dates we'll return to that conversation in just a moment but first we have this week's book recommendation We're excited to have Dr. Chanda Prescott-Weinstein back on the phone with us today. Professor Prescott-Weinstein is the author most recently of The Disordered Cosmos, A Journey into Dark Matter, Space-Time, and Dreams Deferred, but she's joining us today to give us this week's book recommendation. So Chanda, what book are you recommending? Yeah, so I want to recommend an oldie but a goodie, Jane Austen's Mansfield Park. Ooh. Which is maybe a little off the beaten path for Jane Austen. It is, yeah. It Mansfield Park is one of the, if I'm remembering right, I think it's one of her last novels or one of the later ones. And it's not, you know, it certainly doesn't get the same play that Pride and Prejudice, aka the er form of every romantic comedy, um, usually gets. But so tell us, what do you love so much about Mansfield Park? Yeah, so Mansfield Park is, I think a harder book and is not as structurally tight as Pride and Prejudice and Sense and Sensibility are. So I think that that's one reason that it it doesn't get the the same kind of love is that it's not 
easy to read at the pleasure level. You're forced to read it at the level where she's analyzing the social location of a poor white woman among her rich landed gentry cousins whose money is coming entirely from slavery in the Caribbean. Mm. And so really the the book is about the social location of poor white women relative to this larger economic system where human beings are being subjugated so that people can live these lives of the landed gentry. And the landed gentry in the story are jerks, right? Like they're just right. like completely, I guess there's there's Edmund, so he's like sort of redeemable. But even by the end of the book, you don't love Edmund the way that you might like Mr. Darcy by the end of Pride and Prejudice. Maybe. Sure. Even though yeah. for real, you probably shouldn't like Mr. Darcy. Mm-mm, mm-mm, There's a lot no, of like toxic no, masculinity mm-mm. that's bound up with uh-huh, that as mm-hmm, an object of exactly. desire. Exactly. Like, yes. Continue. Sorry. <laughs> yes. 100%. And, you know, I think the context that can be missing for the 21st century reader about Mansfield Park is that Lord Mansfield was the Supreme Court justice who oversaw the Somerset case in the late 18th century. So right around the time Mm. that Jane Austen was born. And this was a case about the freedom of an enslaved Black man on, on British shores. And so a reader in Jane Austen's time would have been reading the use of the word Mansfield in the title of Mansfield Park as a clear reference to this justice who became famous because of this Somerset case. So the argument that I would like to make to people is that actually Mansfield Park should be read as a critique of the landed gentry's dependence Mm. on slavery as a system, on the slave trade and the subjugation of Black people. And there are subtle notes about this in the book that, um, you know, at one point, the patriarch of the family actually has to go to the Indies to check on their properties. Oh, and he takes his older son with him. And so she she wrote that into the book. She was like, yeah, there's some slavery happening here. This is where they're getting their money. And also, look at what these ridiculous jerk little kids are doing with the money that they get. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a read. I really think it's a read. I mean, all of her books are a read of the landed gentry, but that was a very pointed one. That's a great one. And definitely not the kind of critical vein in which we're used to thinking about Austin. So I love that it opens that up. Can you please give us the author and title one more time? Yeah, it's Jane Austen's Mansfield Park. We've been speaking with Dr. Chanda Prescott-Weinstein, author most recently of The Disordered Cosmos, A Journey into Dark Matter, Space-Time, and Dreams Deferred. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Joanne Beard, author of Festival Days. One of the other things that I saw in the Sherry piece and over and over in a number of the pieces is, link this back to what we were just talking about, but is a fear of intrusion. There's, in the Sherry piece, the intrusion is intrusion of the body by what she feels is a is a monster that's sort of living inside of her and kind of taking over her body. And then in another piece where this becomes, you know, much more explicit and it's and it's a short story, um, you say, but it's also an essay. There's literally an intruder in the house of uh, of a woman who is fighting him off. And then later on in the titular essay, there's 
uh, in festival days, again, there's a sense of, oh, something has taken over the body. There's an intrusion there. And all of those pieces treat intrusion in a sort of offended way, right? That, that, that there's an offense there upon the self. But just now you're also talking about sort of putting yourself into the into the mind of somebody who's dying or allowing the loved ones of this person to project themselves. And, and so there's this, it, what I'm hearing and seeing is a kind of like double version of what intrusion means for you, that it might mean something extremely generative, but also extremely hostile and scary. Does that seem right? <laughs> it's so interesting. I'm, I'm sort of grinning to myself right now because I spent so much time with these pieces separately and then together in the form of the book that I sometimes can't see the, you know, forest for the trees just mm-hmm. to be completely cliched. But you're right that that idea of an intruder keeps coming back. Like I keep using it as a metaphor for something. And I've never thought about what it's a metaphor for. I mean, most obviously it was a metaphor for illness, right. um, for cancer in the Sherry piece. And then, um, and then I think my own illness in the festival days piece um, where I feel like I'm trapped inside my own body with some thing that's in there with me. So it's sort of interesting. I don't know where that comes from. And certainly in the short story where the intruder becomes literal, like an, somebody who breaks down the door and comes storming into your study in the middle of the day, I've really never thought about that. But but just to wing it off the top of my head, I think that I have something about me, and this is probably again Midwestern, that's extremely solitary and extremely lonely. Like I have a lot of friends and I have a lot of loved ones. I have a lot of animals, but I am really barricaded in a certain way that I've never been able to get out around. And it might be why, um, forget the fact that I have a long-term partner who I completely love in an emotional, intimate way. Um, The greatest loves of my life have been dogs, truly, because intimacy is so easy with them. Nothing is at stake. And so I think that that might go back to what you're talking about, that idea that that the biggest horror I can imagine in my life is some kind of an intruder who makes his way into my life. Um, and I have to bar the door against him. So it gives me a lot to think about just having you mention that. And it's sort of thrilling to me to imagine that my own work has mysteries in it that might reveal something about my own nature. So thank you. Oh, well, um, I mean, it, it was interesting also to hear you say that because I don't, I think we don't have to do spoiler alerts, <laughs> but yeah. yeah, I think it's fine. But at the end of the story about the intruder, about the the actual sort of literal intruder coming into the house, there's a lot of discussion about tools and ways in which one might use something to protect oneself or to attack another person. And at the very end, the main character decides, let the dogs do the work for you. That's how it ends. And so it's really funny to hear you say, you know, that my greatest love was dogs. 
and that I barricade myself <laughs> because this character does similarly sort of let the dogs do the work for you. Let them protect you. Right, right. Well, I'm in what I think of as the final phase of my life right now, like maybe the last slice of it. And I'm trying to go into it with all kinds of interest and awareness. Hmm. And so I'm trying to sort of break down the last, I don't know, barricades for lack of a better word. And so I like thinking about that. I like thinking about that a lot. One of the things that all of these pieces also do is, aside from kind of diving into the moment of a usually particularly very fraught moment, near death, almost liminal, in each of these pieces, it feels like memories kind of bubble up without much um, help from the from the narrator or from the, whoever the speaker is. And I was wondering about that now that you're talking about, okay, barricades and thinking through that. What is, what's your sense about how memory is playing in your life right now? And maybe particularly at a time when, you know, our day-to-day is pretty banal um, and, and pretty unmemorable in many ways. And how you found yourself sort of working through memories and, and if they are bubbling up for you in the similar way as some of these characters experience it. Well, I think that my childhood had a huge impact on me, mm. as did my young adulthood. And I don't know, even know what that means to say it had a huge impact on me. But I think that my mind goes there more than other people's minds go to their childhoods and young adulthoods. And I say that knowing intimately my sister and brother, and they don't really think about our upbringing and our lives that often as children compared to me. But because of the kind of writing I do, which is mostly what I think of as personal essays, where you take your own experience and you use it to try to illuminate something about the world. I have fetishized my past in a way that you have to do if you're using it as material. So I think my past looms very large for me. And not my recent past, but my past past still really matters to me. And I really think about it and I take it apart. And I imagine a lot of times how my life would be different if I had done things differently. And not in a way of mistakes or anything like that, but just in a way of almost like writing a new book for myself, like thinking, oh, if I had taken this turn, where would I have gone from there? Um, But mostly, you know, our lives are circumscribed by what we're handed when we're born. So, and mine certainly was. And what do you feel like it was, so you grew up in the Midwest. Um, What do you feel like it was circumscribed by? Well, I was raised in a super working class family, Midwestern family, and that's a very particular thing. It means that you don't um, color outside the lines, or it did then. I'm not saying that it does now, because actually the world is different now. But you also can't be too big for your britches, and you can't let anybody think that you think you're too big for your britches. So we were always being whittled down to size, not just by family, but by the world that we lived in there. Mm. So we had very little money. I didn't come from a family that had intellectual aspirations. I didn't come from a family that had aspirations beyond growing up, getting married, and having a family just like the one you came out of. 
And I didn't do those things, but it was a struggle to figure out how not to do them. And everything was a struggle. Going to college in my 30s was a struggle. Believing that I could be something other than a secretary was a struggle. But I just want to say like a good struggle because if it hadn't worked out that way, then who would I be now? And I'm pretty happy with where I ended up. I'm very happy with where I ended up. What alternate futures do you sometimes imagine for yourself or alternate pasts do you imagine? Yeah, well, because I'm a teacher at a college, I think a lot of times at the beginning of every school year, like, what if I would have been one of these kids, Mm. one of these freshmen leaving home? It took so many years for me to figure out how to emotionally leave home as well as, as physically leave home. And I think, wow, what if I would have just like landed in a place like this where I had all new friends, all new people, all new way of looking at the world and where I didn't have to pretend not to be smart What would it have been like not to work a 40-hour work week from the age of 18 on and then figure out how to fold my intellectual, my burgeoning intellectual life into that? So I think about that every year, but Mm -hmm. then I ultimately decide it wouldn't actually have been as much fun as what I did, which is be like a bowling alley girl, you know, with big hair and getting drunk at night and having really cool guys that we had crushes on and having the greatest girlfriends ever. And then meeting my husband when I was 23 and having really having a ball with him for many, many years. So, but I think about it. I think about it because it's the road not taken. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's interesting to hear you say that because there are moments when you share some of that, the the bowling alley and and the the sort of joys of kind of being young and and not fully knowing what what it is that you're doing in this book. It's interesting to hear you say that you both think sort of what would have been and also what might have been in certain um cases and and what was and that you're you are sort of imagining these things while you're also writing essays i think not i think not a lot of people think about essayists as necessarily an, um, imaginative writers <laughs> right that you are you are in fact I, I do think the best essayists do that of course um you have to and that you have to make associations and that takes imagination but i think a lot of people will think well you know fiction is for the people who imagine stuff essays are for people who can really observe and and see it. Um, So it's interesting to hear you talk so much about, you know, really thinking about what things might have been like without really knowing, of course, right? They're purely imagination. So one of the things that, you know, I, I, uh, I mean, actually, well, you know, maybe we can build on that a little bit and, and talk a bit about how you, because you do have a note at the beginning of the book about, two pieces in the book that are fiction or published as fiction. But you say, you know, they're also essays. Maybe we can talk a little bit about how you perceive that difference, if you do perceive a difference at all. I mean, I just said perhaps there's something about imagination there in many people's minds, but I'm not sure that in real life that that's true. What do you think is the difference between an essayist and a fiction writer? Well, I never, even though I teach the essay, 
even though I went to graduate school to learn about the essay, I never have fully understood what an essay is because the form is so malleable. But there are certain kinds of essays that I love that I would like to be able to write, but I can't. I think that I truly land somewhere between fiction and nonfiction in the kind of genre that I work in. And I don't think that it really has a name. There are other people here with me, but I don't think that it fully has a name. And I don't even really like to think about it that much when I'm writing because I just feel like writing what I wanna write. But then I do think about it at the end. I think, you know, is what does this qualify as? Is this a story or is this really nonfiction? Um, so the two pieces in Festival Days that are fiction, truly fiction, are both heavily based on my own life. But you know what? If you were talking right now to a fiction writer, they would say the same thing. I mean, many fiction writers, and I live with one, base their work on what they've experienced in the world. So, so the one that's furthest afield would have to be the one called um, The Tomb of Wrestling, which is about an experience that I never had, which is having an intruder come into your home and you have to defend yourself or attack them or whatever she did. But I can say that when I was writing that piece, I would say to my friend over and over, oh my God, this is just pure autobiography. Because the whole the piece takes place over about five minutes. And yet it's 60 pages long or something. And everything that's folded into those five minutes is my memory, is my experience, even to the extent of the intruder has some memories and those belong to me too. Some of them I made up, but, but most of them belong to me. And so it was really fun for me to go, oh yeah, there was that other thing that I always wanted to write about, like, like what it is to be the grave digger's son. And then I would get to sit down that day and remember something that somebody told me about being a grave digger's son or you know whatever other memories there were or the time my friend elizabeth and me were in a you know were hitchhiking and got in a car with the wrong guys always wanted to write about that but never had an opportunity to do so and then i went oh this piece is the opportunity to do that because i'm just throwing everything into this piece like everything into the blender of the story and then whirling it around and seeing what it means in that moment. So that's why that piece felt so autobiographical because I just brought everything I had that I hadn't been able to write about before and put it in there. So um, maybe you could finish out on talking about the, the titular piece, Festival Days, which again deals with, with death, with uh, illness. And one of the things that struck me is just how, appro I mean, appropriate it felt. It, it felt to the current moment where I think, I think there's certain ways in which um, understanding oh, the massive death toll that we have undergone of putting ourselves in the lives of people who have lost people is really difficult because it's on such a massive scale. 
and that there's certain pieces and certain work. And I have mostly, I don't know if you felt this way, but I think music has kind of helped bring myself into that kind of sense of understanding. But there's, you use poetry here and how you felt sort of working through these things during a, a moment when they really felt pressing and urgent. You know, I think death probably feels urgent, kind of like pain feels urgent. Like when it's happening to you, it's urgent. But at other times it doesn't maybe feel so urgent. So uh, it's a weird state that we're in right now. So I was just curious, so how, one, why festival days? And two, what was that process like to put yourself through that? Right. Well, first of all, why festival days is because I thought of that piece, the final title piece in the collection, as really being a tribute to my good, dear friend, Kathy Russell Rich. Mm -hmm. And that poem, Festival Days, is something that is a poem that she translated from Hindi. It appeared in her book, Dreaming in Hindi. She had two books and a third in the making when she died. But Dreaming in Hindi, at the end, she includes that long, beautiful poem, Festival Days, which is just, it's really dreamlike and gorgeous. And, and the poet, Nand Chaturvedi, is somebody who actually appears quietly in that essay because one day she and Emma went to visit him and that was the day when I got sick and was alone in the hotel by myself. So I love the poem. I think it's beautiful. And it it serves as a tribute both to Nand, who's dead now, and to Kathy, who's dead now. And the thing that I'll say about the pandemic in the book is that one of the most crushing things, I think, for everybody about this last year has been the way that people died. The, the the ultimate cruelty has been that people would be trundled off to a hospital and then isolated to die on their own. And I hesitate even to say this aloud because there will be people listening to this who want to put their hands over their ears because their loved ones died like that. So I apologize in advance. But the thing about this book, with all the death that it has in it, Nobody dies alone. My dog didn't die alone. She didn't. I stayed awake all the last night of her life to be with her. Sherry Tremble's family walked all the way to the edge of her life. And only when she insisted did they walk out of the room and get in their car and drive away. And even then she wasn't alone. She was with Jack Kevorkian and she was with Neil Nickel and those men took care of her. And I know they held her at the end. And Kathy, I know was not alone because I was with her and so was Emma. And then our friend Joy came a few minutes after she died and we all sat with her, you know, for hours in her apartment. So the idea of all of these people in an emergency situation being pulled out of their houses and taken to, you know, hospitals and then left to be alone in their final moments. It's just excruciating to think about. And we all thought about it all year. So it made what was horrible, even doubly horrible, I think. Hmm. Well, um, perhaps we can think of ourselves as 
intruders in their aloneness when we do think about them. Um, Thank and they you for really that. Well. I like that. I like that. Joanne, Thank you so, so much for talking to us and congratulations on the book. It was my pleasure and thank you so much. We've been speaking with Jo Ann Beard. Her new book of essays and short fiction is called Festival Days. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. That will help us get the word out, and we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. The executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broughton. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley-Vlotton. The publisher and editor-in-chief of the LA Review of Books is Tom Lutz. 